If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. So 2019, get into this VR thing, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm looking around going, this is insane. I did get a taste of how complicated it was to perform with this apparatus on your head and manipulating all these controllers and things like that. I love the oohs and ahs. A lot of times, you know, <laughs> we're going through a show and everybody's like, oh, ooh, and that's always a lot of fun. Because it is so new and fraught with technical difficulties, anytime that we do it and everything comes together, that's magic. Great interactive theater starts with connection and magic. But Los Angeles-based Ferryman Collective takes it quite a few steps further. What they do is create immersive live VR experiences. And since starting the company in 2020, they've garnered rave reviews and all kinds of accolades. Their awards include Best Narrative Experience at London's Rain Dance Film Festival for their 2021 production, The Severance Theory, Welcome to Respite, and a South by Southwest Audience Award for their 2022 show, Gumball Dreams. These are two very different experiences. But what both shows have in common is their thought-provoking nature and the fact that they're just the beginning for Ferryman Collective as they continue pioneering live storytelling through this new medium. Deirdre V. Lyons and Stephen Butchko are founding members of Ferryman Collective. Deirdre and Steve, I'm talking to two highly gifted storytellers here. How did you each first discover your passion for sharing stories in the medium of theater? So I've been doing theater and performing since I was a child, I've always gravitated to it. I've always come back to it. I never was very far from it. So it was something that I just naturally fell into and never left. Your heart and soul is in it is what I hear. How about you, Steve? Well, I I discovered very, very early on that I could get attention by making people laugh. And so I did that. My first play that I was involved with was when I was 11 years old. I played Thomas Edison in a production of The Electric Sunshine Man. And from that point, it just kept going. And then as I grew older and learned more about art and theater and storytelling, I just grew to love learning about human nature and meaningful storytelling and how we connect with each other and share stories that help and mean something. We'd started out when we got to LA in 98, it was quite clear that, you know, everybody was saying that you need to produce your own content. And so we started doing that. We produced many things, short films and webisodes and we documentaries. And it was something that we use now because the producing aspect of it, we learned so much. And that transfer translated quite easily to producing, you know, the NVR. I mean, producing in a lot of ways is, is producing and no matter what genre of storytelling you're using. <laughs> when did you first get to perform in VR and what was that experience like? Oh, well, it started with me. Well, with us, technically. I mean, I saw on the Everything Immersive Facebook group, a group of people that I had been working with 
or several years since 2016 in immersive theater in Los Angeles. And I saw this picture and I was like, I know half of these people. And the caption was, if you don't know what the under presents is doing, you should check it out. Cause it's amazing. I was like, well, what is it? And I looked online and I was like, well, I don't know what that is. And, but it looked cool, like a video game. And so I emailed them and said, Hey, do you need more performers? I know half of those people I would love to participate. And Samantha wrote back and says, actually, we do need more performers. So actually, both Steve and I auditioned for the Under Presents. I was able to do it. He was not because of his scheduling. But this is directly before the pandemic. So November of 2019, right? Yeah, I know. It was crazy. So 2019, get into this VR thing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm looking around going, this is insane. This is so crazy. And the controllers trying to act with controllers was like, "Mm, my brain hurts. But eventually, (laughs) I was able to handle the muscle memory of the controllers and started, you know, doing, you know, a lot more of this performing in virtual reality within the under presents, which is theater in a video game, kind of like, the idea is that these players go in and they are expecting to see NPCs, non-player characters, pre-recorded characters that don't really do or say anything other than pre-recorded content. And they would meet this character and then all of a sudden they'd start interacting with them, which would like blow their minds. And then, you know, of course, everybody caught on and it became a huge thing because the pandemic happened and everybody shut down, theater shut down. A lot of people looked at VR as a place to escape or find entertainment and Theater Presents took off. It got extended, more actor hours, a longer run. They did a variety hour, then they transitioned into The Tempest. So it kind of just happened by chance. You really evolved. Steve, when you say you love to make people laugh, what was most fun in those early months? working in VR and how did you get people to laugh doing that as a VR character? Uh, well, there was no fun in those early months. It was like a prison sentence. Huh? <laughs> I had known, I had worked with these same people that Deirdre had before. She did a lot of performing and I knew them. For, I did some performing in real life in the immersive community and spent more time behind the scenes helping the productions out. So I knew them. And as Deirdre said, I could not, because of my scheduling, I could not participate in the under presents, though I auditioned. But I did get a taste of how complicated it was to perform with this apparatus on your head and manipulating all these controllers and things like that. And though I didn't get to do it with Deirdre, I was here most of the time when she was performing. And it was just a joy for me to hear her out in the living room and the connections she was making with the audiences and whatnot. Then when the, eventually when the pandemic set in officially and we were all stuck at home, one of our associates from the in real life immersive community, Brian Tull, who had also been an enthusiast of the under presents along with a gentleman by the name of Braden Roy. They had, Brian was very big into the horror scene and Halloween and that time of year. And he was depressed that Halloween had been canceled. So he told Deirdre, he said, well, you know, since Halloween's been canceled, I would like to make a haunted house in VR. And by that time, none of us were working and we were all at home. And so the four of us got together. It was Brian Toll, Braden Roy, Deirdre and I, and we decided to create this produce this 
short VR experience or play for Halloween called Para, which was kind of like a David Cronenberg-esque horror experience. And so these guys had all had more experience, at least like a year. For Deirdre, it was about a year of experience and getting to learn this, how to operate theatrically within a VR world. And then when I got into it, they had already known, been involved with this. And I had the learning curve for me was pretty steep. So I you ask about making people laugh and boy, it was, it was actually really quite stressful for me because I didn't have that year of sort of dipping my foot into the water and getting to know it. It was just, we, we were producing this thing and it was like three or four hours at a time in the headset. But that doesn't mean that we didn't have fun. We're pretty goofy and we do have a lot of fun sort of putting these things together throughout all the stress of it and interacting with audiences can be a lot of fun as well. That's an important point, I think, because you're making it look easy. It mm. cannot be easy. <laughs> got the technology, which is highly unpredictable. You've got audiences, you know how predictable those aren't. And now you have to express an emotion, connect with the audiences, get them involved. Wow. Yeah. With all of that, what was your best moment for creative growth with either Para or any of the other shows? Well, each it's a there's a an evolutionary process that's happening with this because I mean we're not the first people to do this, but there's not many doing this. And generally the XR and VR field is we're all sort of pioneering this and we're just trying to figure out what works and doesn't. So we learn something from every project that we do, and we try to take what we've learned through failing or succeeding on each project and put that into the next project that we do and keep that growing. So I think that there's highlights from each show that we do that I'm very proud of. And I mean, I could give examples probably from each show, but there isn't one particular thing. I think that every time we get to do it, is a pretty special thing. It's because it is so new and fraught with technical difficulties. There's a lot of frustration that comes with it. But I'd have to say that any time that we do it and everything comes together where the technology works, we're staying online, we're staying connected with the audience, the audience gets into the world, and we get to perform and include the audience in those shows, that's magic. When it works, boy, it really works. And I think that that's a special thing that I'm very proud of being able to help facilitate and make that happen. I love the oohs and ahs. A lot of times, you know, <laughs> we're going through a show and everybody's like, oh, oh, and that's always a lot of fun. I, there are so many. So I actually love it when I hear the crazy things, like people who say, I have changed my career path because of the show that you have, because of seeing your show. So we have people who are like researchers who have seen our show and go from, you know, researching and getting their PhD in traditional theater, you know, down that path to digital theater, like what it is that we're doing. Or there's this beautiful story about a group from Japan called Titan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was actually two incidents for it in Venice that year. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, this great show called Titan is a live theater performance piece in VR chat. We perform in VR chat. That's the social platform that we use to do the shows. And we got to Venice and there was a group doing shows during the day, Tight Man, because they were in Japan 
the mornings and afternoons work better for them because our most of our actors are in LA, one's in Bangkok, but most of them are in LA. You know, the evenings were better for us. We'd start our shows around 4 p.m. And this Japanese group were doing, we saw the show and it was just, it was magical. It was just like so delightful and lovely. And if anybody gets a chance to see Titan, see it because it's delightful. And the director didn't speak a lot of English, but he, enough to basically say, to the effect that the reason that they created Type Man in VR Chat was because they had seen Welcome to Respite, one of our other shows. And I just, oh, I love these stories. And then there was the time. Yeah, yeah. The Well, the Type Man guys, their show was very similar to ours where they had one actor. We were showcasing Gumball Dreams at that point. So we had similar show structure in that it was like one performer and three audience members. So that's how we got to share this Space was built for us by the Venice Film Festival people. We're very supportive. And yeah, we got to experience each other's shows. And so we bonded a little bit like that. But yeah, those guys, that one day when it went in and he told me that he had seen Welcome to Respite, our prior show, two times, and it made him want to produce their show in VR chat was like, wow, that's that's a pretty neat thing. But for that same festival, when we're there, the festival provides the headsets. We have actors, Deirdre and I like to do as much of the performing as possible, but when we're in festival situations, we don't, we have to be there to logistically make the thing work. So we're helping audience members in and out of headsets. And these three people came in and there was this young lady had an accent that I, European accent of some sort that I couldn't, I didn't know where she was from. And she claimed that she was worked in the industry a little bit and kind of technically knew the types of things that we were doing. So she got in there and I was, they were started the show and I had the earpiece in. So I was, we were in connection with the actor that was performing and we get to see the audience members that are part of the show and we get a lot of information. And during Gumball Dreams, there's a part where the main character, the main character Onyx in the show has a one-on-one conversation with each audience member. And I heard our actor, Kelly, ask this young woman, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Russia. And I thought, wow, that's that's going to be an interesting conversation to have. And Kelly's a pro and they went on with that. I didn't hear a lot of the conversation, but towards the end of the show, we were helping people out of the headsets. And I walked into the room where this young lady was and she was sitting on the chair and she was just, she was crying. She was just bawling her head off. And I knelt down and I said, asked her if she was all right. She said, I'm really sorry. I don't do this. She said, I wasn't prepared for this. It was a pretty intense show and I'm from Moscow and there's so much going on right now that those of us that have headsets, this is our only escape. And it sort of, it changed who she was. There was a revelatory thing that happened with her and a a connection that she was, know that she was going to have. And so Christopher Lane Davis, who's a co-creator of the show, was there and he came in and spoke with her for a while. We just, we just reinforce that the feelings that you're having are valid. And this is why we do this. It's our goal to tell stories that connect with people. And we gave her a hug and said, you know, keep doing what you're doing through art. We heal. And that was a, that story resonates with me today to know that we can have those kinds of connections with people and it's a global audience now. So we get to share this worldwide. It's really quite uh, remarkable. 
Deirdre, would you tell me the story of coming up with Gumball Dreams? I understand you wrote it. Yeah. 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 I wrote the first draft of it, came up with the idea and the concept for it. Our incredibly, one of our incredibly talented developers is Christopher Lane Davis had built these worlds prior to us knowing him in VRChat. One was called Club Gumball, which is a PC VR world only. You have to have some super fancy, expensive rig to get into it. But the other one was Gumball Lounge, which was Quest 2 friendly. And we had been doing Welcome to Respite. And he had worked on that. And we were looking at the next festival going, you know, we really want to keep the momentum up here. And I had had this idea of setting a show in the world of the Gumball world. And I just thought about it a lot. And eventually I wrote a first draft of it. And I took it to Christopher and I said, what do you think? And he says, I love it. So we worked together on the script, writing and rewriting it, several drafts. I think we're on 13 or so now, but making sure that the world fit, the lore fit his world. And then he basically took both Club Gumball and Gumball Lounge and sort of put both of them together to create Gumball Dreams, its own sort of world and experience. So that's kind of how it happened. It all unfolded kind of organically and naturally. And I'm so glad that he decided to jump on board and so wholeheartedly, you know, ran with this. And we all did. What do you remember very best about your first performance of Gumball Dreams? Oh, well, gosh, what was our first performance of Gumball it, Dreams? Well, it's, that's a little, shows? yeah, that's a little hard to pinpoint because yeah. as the director, Deirdre was, you know, she oversaw, well, everything. And so we were both well, there it, for it, all, for, it, there's a rehearsal process. Yeah. So getting in and learning the blocking, then there's getting to start working with the actors and then eventually they're performing. And then there's test audiences mm -hmm. that come, yeah, come through. Yeah, this is you create and um, you get the test audience so, in and you're like, oh, Although so, it's, that's you know, it's like oh. the first performance ever of it or <laughs> the first performance that you did. I don't, I don't even know if I remember uh, the first performance that you did. There's God. so many. It's the first performance you did? I don't. It's pretty, it's pretty nerve wracking. It is. Um, it's, it's totally nerve wracking. But each of our actors are amazing and each of them brings a different quality to Onyx. And I really love that. You know, we have about, I think there's nine actors that are trained to do the show. So that way we can make sure that nobody's overused. It can be exhausting working in VR. We want to make sure that people have, you know, not too much time in a headset. There's always emergencies too, where right. somebody, you know, these are all actors. So you get a, you get a good pay. You get a, you get a, yeah, you get a TV show thing. Yeah. You get, yeah, you know, life happens. So we've got to account for those types of emergency situations too so but oftentimes but, we'll step into shows like yeah. that one time oh my god we came back from arizona because we had some family issues to to deal and we drove like six hours and we got there got home at, it, was it was like, like 11, nine o'clock yeah it was like it was nine late. or ten it was, it was like yeah and we had we were working with kashan which is a festival in that's taiwan taiwan and Based on the schedule that we had worked out together, there was a line in the email to us about the time, which was like, okay, we're going to do shows at 10 a.m. Taiwan time, 10 a.m. for Taiwan and 10 p.m. for LA. 
let's say that's completely wrong, but whatever. Oh, on, on set X date, but the time for ours was the day before. Right. But so they didn't put that in the second part. And I, I mean, I knew that we were like, but time zones, oh my God, it's so crazy. So we get home and, and they go, okay, we don't see anybody online for the 10 o'clock show. And I was like, uh oh, <laughs> and I stuck a headset on, and I'm like, "We're here, we're here, here we go, doing a show right now, so, at ten o'clock at night." And then we had another we, one at midnight. Yeah, we had like three of them, so we ended up going to bed at four. Yeah, we're like, after dealing with like family issues, driving for six hours. It was else. crazy, but to answer your point, I mean, as, as far as the first, it's kind of hard to say what the. First, there's first official performances of film festivals, which we don't perform normally because we're usually there mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. doing other things. But I think that when we feel like we have something that's ready to show, we'll get test audiences in. And there's always this, I don't know, there's always this excitement with how are they going to what is the reaction going to be? Because by that time, we're into it so much and so deep and we've lost complete objectivity. And it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, we understand the power and magic of the worlds that we get to like do this in, but still, once you do it, a, you do it a bunch of times, it's like, okay, it's not new anymore. And there's so many things that we're trying to keep track of, but the reminder for us is the audiences when they come in. We get to do perform those shows for the first time. But I think it would be probably within the first couple of test show audiences and the reactions that we get. That kind of informs us if we're on to something right. that's working. Because we'll all go in invisibly in an invisible avatar. So a lot of times we're watching the shows and listening to what's happening and making sure that, you know, everything is landing and working the way we hope. And when it does, you just get shivers. You're like, yeah, it's working. it works, it works. <laughs> You've got the magic connection with this. Let's say that you're backstage, quote unquote, with one of these virtual performances. And now you're going to put on any one of your immersive shows. What's happening for you? And what are you learning from it? Oh, we learn so much when we do shows. Oh, at the festivals, we learn a lot. Basically, what we do for festivals when we're doing shows is we'll have a certain amount of audiences. At this point, it's only ever been three for audiences at festivals. So we'll sign them up and we have them come into our space. And we usually have all the menus set up already because because we can. And it just makes it easier. So we basically you know, put the headset on, get everything set up clean the headset, which is super important, and then plop it on our audience's head, and then they're there, right? So then we just teach them how to move forward and back and right and left, and all the menus are set up. And and oftentimes, this is like the first time people have been in VR, or one of the first few times. So there is a lot of like sea legs being gotten, a lot of wows, a lot of looking up and down and all around. But it's stressful, too, because we live or die by Wi-Fi. If Wi-Fi falls out for either our audience or our actors, then it's troubleshooting time, right? Yeah, it's a lot of, like, South by Southwest specifically. But Venice was a whole other different thing because all of the headsets that they provided, they weren't our headsets. They provided the headsets. 
and they were tethered to computers. Which projected which, what the audience was yeah. seeing. So it's yeah. it's more stable in certain ways, but it doesn't mean that there's not technical issues that we have to worry about. Yeah. So yeah, with Venice, we got to so we they had their own rooms. They had these big 55-inch monitors that projected what each audience member was seeing at that point. Mm -hmm. So we got information that way. We got information from the audience member because we were walking back and forth watching them. And then also we have an earpiece in that we were, so we were in communication with the actor that was performing remotely. So we were in communication with them and it's, it's making sure that they understand where we're at in the process of getting the audience in the headsets. And so based on all of that, we're learning so much. And like at Venice, we learned that to Deirdre's point where we the audience members are everybody who is has zero experience with headsets all the way on up to world builders and code writers. So, but a lot of new, new people come try this stuff out and that's more challenging for us, but that's an opportunity to show people, have them experience new forms of storytelling. So it's it's really neat in that way. And it's it's our goal and it's our job to put people at ease, to give them the information that they need to have a as good of an experience as possible. So we learned that part of our onboarding is a physical one when it comes to being live at film festivals and we show them if they're not familiar, we show them the controllers and say, mm -hmm. all right, this is what you're going to have to do so that it speeds along the onboarding process once they get into the headset. And it's just, we learned so much <laughs> for, about so for Venice, we had to, we had to tell, we had to start telling audiences that the puzzles were hard, mm. but that they didn't have to, that they just to bear with them for five minutes. If after five minutes, you aren't able to solve the puzzle, it will resolve itself because there were these two ladies who came through Poor Stevie was the only one there at the time. And they got so upset with the puzzles because they were having such a hard time <laughs> with them that they just took their headsets off and said, I can't do this. And they They're put it down and threatened to beat me to death with the equipment. <laughs> so that was one of the other things we realized. And, and now when it comes to gumball dreams, as anybody who's listening hasn't been through the show part of the show requires that audience members solve some puzzles in the vr space and we learned pretty quickly that we need to start telling people that look the show will go on if you don't solve these puzzles just focus for five minutes and if you don't get it it'll be okay and that was one of the things that i got really frustrated because we're all horrible at these things in the beginning when we were start producing the show i didn't know what the hell was going on i couldn't do these things and it took a long time so they were even more difficult in the beginning we made them easier yeah. for people but i remember those days of being really quite anxious that i could not solve these and i could understand from a new audience member's perspective if you couldn't solve these things the show's not going to go on until I solve the thing. It's like, yeah. that's that would freak me out. Yeah. So we had to start telling people, relax. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> the puzzles existed in Gumball Lounge, the original thing, and they were made easier for Gumball Dreams. And some audiences are really good at them and they're super fast. And we're like, geez, that's like... That's like too fast. Onyx doesn't have a chance to do their one-on-one -on -one with their audience. Yeah. 
Because people often think that the puzzles are the important thing and they're not. They do offer this sort of different interaction because you just go with another audience member to collaborate and work through a puzzle together. So you're by yourself and you're talking to each other and you're trying to work this thing out. And that's a different kind of user experience. But the goal is actually to leave one of the audience members with Onyx. So every audience has this sort of interaction with the main actor that and they talk about different things like that love and gratitude and dreams and and, wherever it takes them yeah and the puzzles time out after five minutes so you know that you know they have time to have that conversation but we had to start telling our audiences in venice that you know just just be patient it's okay it's okay it's okay And I personally experienced this when you took me into Gumball Dreams. I thought, oh, no, people are going to be waiting for me. So yeah, with it, anybody who's listening, it's well worth it. We haven't said anything yet about Welcome to Rest, but a very different show than Gumball Dreams. Would you tell me about this one? That's where it all, that really kind of put us on the map. Put us on the map. We've done Para, the 20-minute proof of concept. After that, we did Krampus Knock because Brian's moniker is Krampus, and it was December, so obviously we had to do that. And that was a that was a delightful show, and it, it was working, and people had fun, and we we submitted it for uh, an innovation award and got a nomination out of that from the for PGA. Producers Guild of America. Yeah, yeah. And so we're like, oh, we're on to something. We're on to something. And Steve and I, having learned from the other two productions, we're like, well, we'd really love a show that's just two actors so that we can get the actor-audience ratio down. This is Yeah, this, these are the types of things that we're learning from each show. Like with Para, we had <laughs> damn near as many actors as audience members and yeah. it was just like yeah it's That's too much good. we need to streamline this process yeah. and we don't want somebody to have to run the show and not you know be a part of the show we want our actors to run the show so that's like one less body that has to be there for the show right and so we we wanted something that we could take a little time with that was just two actors and that we could really develop to take to festivals because we had seen that festivals were open to this kind of content and excited about this kind of content. And we're like, wow, well, these are festivals we and, wanted to go to our whole lives. And, and Para and, and Krampusnacht, they both, they were holiday related and the holidays were on us. So we only had a month to pull para. each of those together. A month and a half. For yeah. A little, bit a little bit longer, not too much. But so we wanted something that we could really take what we had learned and put time into and develop. So so that's why I was like, hey, I'd seen this show in Los Angeles called well, Welcome to Rest. She was part of it. Yeah, I played the, the shadow voice in that. I was just the voiceover. I did some recording for the creator. Lindsay Scoggin was, is the creative director of Co-Act Productions. And so it was the pandemic. And I said, Lindsay, hey, you want to do this thing that we're doing? She's like, well, I'm stuck at home. Okay. Yeah. She didn't even have a headset. Oh. We were trying to determine what our next project was, and this Welcome to Respite, it's actually, it's the Severance Theory, Welcome to Respite is the first chapter of an intended, like, four-part series, kept invading Deirdre's mind, and she was telling me about it, and I hadn't seen, I was out of state at the time, so I didn't get to see it, but it was a, it was an interesting show that was, had a short run, but it was well-received that deals with childhood trauma and disassociative identity disorder. And Deirdre kept mentioning it and she told me about it. I was like, yeah, well, it sounds intriguing. And then we told the team about it and they were, they said, well, 
we don't know how it would translate to VR, but we're willing to experiment with it. And then we reached out to Lindsay Scoggin, the original creator, and she had about the same response. She was like, well, I've never, I don't even have a headset, but, and I don't know how this would translate, but she was willing to give it a go. So she joined our team and we worked on adapting this. Yep. And that went to Tribeca. And there are things in that show that you can't do in real life. Like you can take an audience who's an adult and shrink them down to the size of a seven-year-old child who's seen the world the way they used to from looking up to their parents to like trying to see over the countertops. Like you can't do that in real life. You can't it's not possible, but in VR, we can make you a seven-year-old child and your body sort of remembers, even if your mind is like, oh, this isn't real. Like, no, it's not real, but your eyes are telling you it is. Yeah. You're looking down at your hands and you're looking up at your parents and it's that, kind of magical. That's when we, you were asking about performances, what it's like to do the first performance. And that was one that I distinctly remember when we had submitted after we got, the, the show wasn't even done yet. And it was a good bit of it was sort of the mechanics of it were in place and we had been rehearsing it and we had submitted it to Tribeca and a gentleman by the name of Lauren Hammonds was the curator of the XR component of the festival. And he, he came through the thing and I remember the performance going well, it went, there was nothing horrible that happened. And then at the end, we were talking to Lauren said, well, this hasn't been done. And then at the end, this will happen. And these are the other things that we need to do for the show. And he went away. And then about, we didn't hear from him. And we didn't know if that was a, <laughs> like the guy just left and we didn't hear from him. So I emailed him eventually. And I said, Lauren, thanks again for coming. If there's any questions you have, you know, we're here for you. And he responded pretty quickly after that. And he said, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you. He's just, he's busy, man. And he said, I've been busy, but also this performance has stayed with me. And I've been, I've been having to, I've been thinking about it for about the last week. And I want to talk to you and your team. And so we got on a Zoom call with him and he mentioned about how moved he was by it. And he had never really experienced anything like that. And then he invited us to have our world premiere at the festival. And I think it was at that point where I think we kind of collectively realized that, all right, this is, <laughs> this is a pretty powerful thing that we're working on here in general, yeah. but specifically this piece of theater, our goal was to connect with an audience. Yeah, to explore the intimacy. Cause we'd seen a lot of like the big awe moments, the spectacle of VR being shown off, but that we, I had seen in the under presents and Tempest moments of just just intimate audience connection, just, you know, be the feeling of being seen by another soul. And I wanted to show that would explore that. And I think after Lauren told us that they wanted us in Tribeca, we were all just silent. We're all just like, whoa, like we're all we, we weren't expecting him to, to say that. Offer us to be in yeah. the thing, expecting like, it's, well, what about the logistics and this and that and the other? And then all of a sudden we were like, oh, oh God. So that, that's that's what changes. So, but Welcome to Respite is a special show, I think, for many reasons for us, because it was it was the first time, and I don't know if this is the first time ever, but it certainly was for us to take an existing immersive, in real life immersive play and adapt it for the use and performances in virtual reality. And it showed us that we could it is possible and even though that we had to 
trade certain things from the in real life version to the virtual reality version yeah it succeeded way 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 beyond what we had even imagined possible Deirdre mentioned that it has changed people's trajectory in their studies we had some audiences say oh I didn't have a good relationship with my father and in the moment in the attic I really just really felt like a a fatherly connection there that was healing I remember one audience coming down and and just insisting upon seeing the the scary shadow monster even when the parents tried to brush it off they're like no I saw it I want help. I need help. And we were like, okay, okay, tomorrow we will make sure we get you that, right? Like there have been like so many heart warming and moving moments where people will come up to us and say, you know, that that really affected me. And that means the world to us. One of the challenges that we had that we were grappling with, because it's all new and we'd never done this before, was because it deals with childhood trauma and dissociative identity disorder. We're not licensed in anything. So we have to be really careful about how we portray these situations. And, you know, again, it's our goal to bring empathy to people that deal with this and in general. So we paid a lot of attention to that and we didn't know how it was going to be accepted. And we were ready for people yeah. to, I mean, we did to get come out of the woodwork psychologists through and, and, and that's yes we so we that. even got medical people through that said i'm a therapist and i've going through this made me feel a little more like what it would be like to go through have a disorder like this so it was actually helpful in that regard too so we were we felt really good about that that we could you know it's a our goal is not to cause harm here <laughs> Empathy is really the key word here. If you get to be the premium person, it puts you in a highly vulnerable situation and at the same time makes you realize what little Alex is going through. People are going to want to know, shameless plug time, when are you going to be doing some more performances of the severance theory and or gumball dreams? Well, we'll be doing more shows coming up here pretty soon. Just sign up for our newsletter, ferrymancollective.com is our website. So go there, sign up for the newsletter. We put out information there. We also put it out on all of our socials. So we got a Facebook, we've got the Instagrams, we've got the Twitters. And a lot of times there we'll also include discount codes for people who follow our socials. So ferrymancollective.com. And we should point out that this is a virtual experience. You can do this right from your living room. So that was my question. And I'm not technical. You were both really super patient with me getting me on to VR chat. So anybody's going, oh, I'm not technical. No, that's no excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, our shows are all Quest 2 friendly. So if you have a Quest 2 or your kid has a Quest 2, you can see one of our shows. What's next for Ferryman Collective? Where are you going next with your shows? Well, there's there's lots of things (laughs) going on with Ferryman Collective. Well, first, the Severance Theory Welcome to Respite has kind of had to stop for a moment because Lindsay, the creative director of COAC Productions, of which the IP is based on, got pregnant. She, and she, she became a mother. A, <laughs> a girl who's just adorable and just tiny. So that's going to be at least five years before we even look at that again. She, yeah, she's um, taking a break from all that. So we're not sure about more chapters of severance theory. Maybe one day. But we are working with a bunch of different other people, like some of the team members are working with one group and we're working with a couple other groups uh, developing more 
productions and yeah it out there there's some folks that we know from the in real life immersive community that have a show that they they have performed in real life that they're working with brian and Braden on and our team member witten frank to adapt that show into a virtual reality show kind of like what we did with welcome to respite Braden is always working on some other projects Oh, he started um, uh, of a his group own. called xrlive.org. Right. So there's a website called xrlive.org, and it is his goal to create a sort of a calendar of live VR experiences so people can check out what might be coming up. In yeah. Now. And from different companies right. like the Meta Movie or, you know, Onboard XR. There's um, groups. a friend of ours by the name of Joe Hunting. There's a shameless plug for him. He's a young filmmaker, and he made a documentary called We Met in Virtual Reality that he was lucky enough to get it, have its world premiere at Sundance, and it got picked up by HBO. So his movie shot entirely in VR chat about how people come together in VR chat and form communities and relationships that got received distribution from HBO Max. And you can watch that now. It's a beautiful show gives people an idea of what VR chat is like and being in virtual reality. Deirdre and I are going to be working with him and his partner, Jenny, who's a star of the show, on their sure. next project as well. Uh-huh. And then we're also developing two more VR plays with some heavy hitters in the VR community. We're going to be starting working on those here pretty soon. So lots of different things happening. Yes. We met in VR for the HBO, xrlive.org for the resource. And I'll be good and not ask you the titles yet of what you're developing, but I'd love to know as soon as you can tell me. Sure. <laughs> You've already mentioned your newsletter, but what else do you need? How can people best support you? Oh my gosh, come see our shows. Yes, yes. We love that. This is a small community, right? So we're trying to grow interest and excitement, not only for audiences, yep. but creators. We would, you know, we need more creators in the space because all of the creators that are coming to the space help grow the audience and the interest in this new genre of theater. And if, yeah, so sharing experiences on social media helps get eyes on what we're doing. And this form of theater in general is good. If you happen to know any hedge fund managers that have a a 10-pound box of $20 bills that they don't want, we're American artists and there virtually is, virtually, is no funding for the arts in general in this country, which is, it's it's a crime. It really is. And Mm -hmm. we change that in general. So we do these things, you know, with the money that we can and the talents that we can bring together, but we're hoping to work with companies to to do things on a bigger scale, but maybe even get into some brand activations. A lot of times there's like pop-up experiences. Yeah. So all of, all of the eyes on what we're doing helps. So we, anybody that can participate in our shows and talk about it is helpful for us to keep, keep growing this. Yeah. Signature question for my podcast. If people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you and the work you're doing? Deirdre? Oh my, that's a big question. (laughs) Oh my God. You know, a lot of what I think people get afraid of, of technology and innovation because it's so, so new. And, you know, we need these new experiences to help stay young, to help our brains grow and to start to integrate 
this technology into our lives so that it doesn't feel so scary. I mean, I remember a time when Zoom was scary. And I remember a time when when you had to go to Ticketmaster to buy a ticket instead of going online, right? You know, I remember pagers, like only drug dealers had pagers, but then we had pagers. And now we have phones that we carry around that have entire encyclopedias and libraries and all the information we want in the world. And it's always scary when you first start working with this kind of technology. It's so new, there's so much to learn, but it's actually really healthy for us to to take these tools and use them for good because it is a tool as many tools are, they can be used for good and for evil. Like, you know, certainly there's trolls on the internet and nobody wants any of that, but these are they are what we make of it. And if we all choose collectively to use these tools to make the world a better place, then we can do that. Steve, how about you? Yes, what she said. Uh, (laughs) Patience and acceptance is what I would like people to take away. Patience with all of the frustrations of having to learn how to use the equipment to access the work is required because right now it's so new and developing that a lot of it isn't smooth and there's a the the learning curve can be fairly steep so patience is important and then acceptance that there are new ways to tell classical stories there's new ways to create art and using the new technology that's being introduced like ai we have to understand that it's part of our lives now. You may like it, you may not like it, but it's here and it can be used for good. And I think we need to embrace all of these new forms, whether it's it's AR, it's VR, it's AI, it's all of those forms of potential storytelling and technology. Deirdre and Steve, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Dot. Lovely to spend time with you. You and I have been listening to director, writer, producer, and performer Deirdre V. Lyons and actor-producer Stephen Butchko, founding members of Immersive VR Experience production company Ferryman Collective in Los Angeles. Sign up for Ferryman Collective's newsletter to find out more about their upcoming shows at ferrymancollective.com. That's ferrymancollective.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And click the button to subscribe. It's free. Our music is royalty-free production music from Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.